What do two military leaders, living 2,000 years apart, have in common? One who led troops in battle from the age of 16, and the other who, except for one brief engagement, didn't command troops in combat until he was more than 60 years old. That is the subject of this and the next episode of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. Welcome back, or for new listeners, welcome. I'm Chris Mayer, retired U.S. Cavalry Colonel, and at one time anyway, instructor for the U.S. Army's Command and General Staff College. This series of podcasts introduces the enduring lessons of war, not so much for those who study war as a profession, but for anyone who wants to fulfill their role as informed citizens in our country's deliberations about war and peace. This is the second episode talking about how a single individual can, through strategic vision and strength of will, change the course of a war. This episode looks at Alexander of Macedon and will continue with Helmut von Moltke of the Prussian General Staff. To begin, I want to apologize for a break between this and the previous episode. Certain events related to other episodes in this podcast series diverted my attention and not in a good way. These will most likely form the basis for a future episode. Then, despite being fully vaccinated, I managed to contract COVID for Christmas. I am on the mend now, and today I will once again address great commanders. The title of these podcasts is The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. So sometimes I should probably talk about ancient warfare and show how enduring features can still be relevant today. In getting ready for this podcast, I asked colleagues of mine for two recommendations for persons who, through force of personality, changed warfare. In each case, one of the two people suggested was Alexander the Great. When putting this podcast together, however, I realized that to give Alexander proper credit, I needed to devote an entire podcast to him. So I will begin with Alexander, and then, in the next podcast, I'll jump ahead two millennia to the creation of modern armed forces as we know them. The struggle between Greece and Persia was like a battle between a mouse and an elephant, where first the mouse keeps from being trampled, and then overthrows the elephant in its home domain. The Persian Empire as it was at the time had existed for half a millennia and built on scientific, social, and political development of the two millennia before it. It commanded the resources of three of the four great river valley civilizations, Mesopotamia, the Nile, and the Indus River Valleys. Its population consisted of two-fifths of the estimated world population at that time. Tolerant of the disparate cultures within its empire, the dominant monotheistic Zoroastrian religion of the Persian nobility provided a unifying direction for governing that empire. The Greek city-states, on the other hand, represented only a small peninsula in Europe broken up by harsh terrain, along with numerous islands and enclaves along the western coast of modern-day Turkey, Sicily, and parts of the foot of the Italian boot. Although there was a common language and heritage, there were also 1,500 squabbling city-states, often at war with one another, except for short periods when they would cooperate to face an outside threat. Of these, the two dominant Greek powers were Athens and Sparta. Sparta, also known as Lacedaemon or Laconia, was the preeminent land power for several centuries. Athens was the dominant naval power. When facing Persia, these two, with their allies, 
were able to maximize the core competencies of their respected armed forces to achieve synergistic effect. So, for example, while the Spartan-led Greeks delayed the Persian forces on land at Thermopylae, the mostly Athenian Greek fleet fought the Persians at sea at Artemisium. These delaying actions bought time to evacuate Athens, leaving the Persians with an empty victory. This allowed the disparate Greek states to fully mobilize under Spartan leadership and defeat the Persian forces in complementary land and sea engagements at Salamis, Plataea, and Machalis, completely destroying the Persian forces. Completely destroying is not much of an exaggeration. Persian deaths are estimated at 100,000 at Plataea compared to 1,000 Greek deaths, while at Macaulay another 40,000 Persian troops were killed. Although the size and resources of the Persian Empire meant that they could easily make up these losses, it provided the Greeks with time. Some battles between the Athenian-led fleet and Persia followed, but finally the immediate Persian threat ended and fighting among the Greeks resumed. The main event was the 60 years of off-and-on fighting known as the Peloponnesian Wars. This struggle so weakened the Athenians and the Spartans that Thebes was able to revolt against Sparta and establish its own hegemony over Greece. While this was happening, in the northern part of the Balkan Peninsula, a new contender, Philip of Macedon, built a new kind of army. To begin, he changed the core of his army from being a citizen militia to a professional standing force. Together, with improved equipment and rigorous training, his infantry became the equivalent to or superior to the Spartans. In fact, Philip reinvented heavy infantry. The soldiers of the Macedonian phalanx were more lightly armored than the standard Greek hoplite, abandoning bronze breastplates and heavy shields for smaller, lighter shields and pikes up to six meters in length. The first few rows of the Macedonian phalanx presented longer, overlapping pikes that pushed into the enemy formation, with steel spear points pushing into bronze shields beyond the reach of the shorter spears of the traditional Greek hoplite formation. This worked even better against Persian infantry, which used wicker shields. Philip did maintain a traditional, militia-type heavy infantry in their hoplite body armor and large shields, but these were a secondary force behind the phalanx of his pike infantry. Another innovation was heavy cavalry. Prior to Philip, cavalry meant light cavalry, which, with light infantry, was a harassing force. Without saddles or stirrups, mounted warriors could not fight in close combat. Even swinging a sword and missing could cause the rider to fall. Aside from that, horses were expensive. Taking the time to train and maintain the training of a mounted warrior was an expense that few city-states could afford, unless that city was Sparta, and Sparta only used light cavalry from their allies. As a result, the role of light cavalry was to annoy the enemy infantry with arrows and javelins, potentially disrupting the opposing heavy infantry phalanx and providing an advantage for a final push by one's own heavy infantry. Philip's cavalry was different. They could fight from horseback. They still didn't have saddles, but they made up for that in training. They were armored and equipped with a lance that could be used for thrusting and a sword for slashing. It was a professional force capable of charging into an infantry formation that had been disrupted by the missiles of light cavalry and infantry, or the pikes of the Macedonian phalanx. 
New innovations in engineers improved both his artillery and siege machines. His mechanical artillery could reach out and take down enemy archers from the battlements of cities or shoot arrows into enemy infantry formations long before his own forces came within bow range of enemy light infantry. Even more importantly, Philip developed combined arms tactics for this new force, seeking a synergistic application of his new heavy infantry and heavy cavalry with existing light cavalry, light infantry, and engineers. These new formations and tactics enabled Philip to dominate warfare on the Greek peninsula. Macedon defeated both Thebes and Athens, and Philip became hegemon, or war leader of the combined Greek city-states. Philip's son was Alexander. While his father was establishing the hegemony, Alexander was at home, being tutored by none other than Aristotle. Aristotle taught Alexander and his companions, many of whom would later serve as Alexander's subordinate commanders, about medicine, philosophy, morals, religion, logic, and art. This gave Alexander and his future generals a shared perspective on the world, which facilitated his generals sharing Alexander's strategic and tactical vision. The strategic vision, built on the political goal of the Greek city-states to attack Persia, freeing Greek settlements on the other side of the Aegean Sea from Persian domination, and assure that Persia would be unable to repeat its previous efforts to conquer the Greek world. Alexander also learned from members of the Persian nobility who were exiled at his father's court. From this, Alexander understood Persian culture, its strengths, weaknesses, and what it would take to establish governance over Persian areas. Alexander's classical education provided another military advantage. He read at least one book by the Athenian warrior philosopher Xenophon. Xenophon's book, Anabasis, described how he led a force of 10,000 Greek mercenaries who were left stranded in lower Mesopotamia to fight their way up the Euphrates all the way to the Black Sea. Alexander would follow that same route but in the opposite direction, taking advantage of Xenophon's descriptions of the terrain, the fords, and the types of forces the Persians could bring to bear, and knowing that an isolated Greek force deep within Persia could prevail. The combined arms force Alexander inherited from his father provided unmatched combat superiority over any Greek or Persian force the Macedonians may encounter in the Balkans. It would fare less well, however, in the more open battlefields of Asia. That limitation is what caused Xenophon's force to become isolated in Mesopotamia. Alexander's education prepared him for that, not only learning from Xenophon but also from Aristotle being able to see old things in new ways. As a result, Alexander did far more than use a superb tool that had been given to him. He used it in ways not seen before, and in some ways was not seen again for millennia. At that time, armies fought as a single entity under the watchful command of the strategos, or commanding general. The commander needed to be able to see and direct the entire battlefield. Scouts might operate apart from the main body and out of the commander's line of sight, but everything else operated as an articulated unit under the direction of the strategos. Subordinate commanders merely executed the orders relayed from him. Light, missile-throwing infantry and cavalry may operate on the flanks of the friendly force, harrying the enemy and pinning him in place, but still operated as part of the larger force. Alexander would change all of that.
Under his vision, different arms would fight as independent but mutually supporting elements. Instead of being an auxiliary force breaking up the enemy main body in preparation for the crushing weight of the hoplite phalanx, the heavy cavalry became the decisive element. The Macedonian phalanx, with its long pikes, would hold the enemy in position while the heavy cavalry, maneuvering separately from the main body, created a flank of the enemy, crushing the enemy in upon himself, while light cavalry maneuvered even more independently into the enemy's rear. In the meantime, Alexander's traditional heavy-armored hoplite infantry remained to the rear of his formation, not so much as a reserve, although it could do that if needed, but rather to keep the opponent from being able to create an exploitable flank in Alexander's own force. This concept required commanders to be able to operate independently of the overall commander, taking initiative guided by a common vision of the battle. To enable this flexibility, Alexander also reduced the size of his subordinate commands or battalions, giving them greater articulation and the ability to change fronts or move to meet new threats and opportunities. The epitome of this was the heavy cavalry, which operated in a diamond formation. This enabled each individual cavalryman to turn to his left, right, or rear and attack as a coherent formation in a new direction. The flanking maneuver with heavy cavalry was so important to success that Alexander frequently led that force himself, leaving the main body under the command of subordinate generals who understood Alexander's vision for the battle and were trusted to command the main body without Alexander's personal direction. Prior to Alexander, no general trusted subordinate commanders with operationally critical independent commands. These capabilities were fully displayed during the Battle of Gaugamela, which was the decisive victory of Alexander over the Persian Emperor Darius. When Persian chariots attacked, the small units of the Macedonian phalanx opened gaps in their lines. If given the choice between running at pikes or turning towards an opening, horses will choose the open area every time regardless of what the charioteer wants. As the chariots passed through, the Macedonian battalions closed ranks again. Alexander's light cavalry and infantry then picked off the isolated charioteers and their horses with bow and javelin. Shortly after that, Alexander led his heavy cavalry against the Persian center of gravity, leaving command and control of the rest of the army to his subordinate commanders. Alexander's left was protected by allied Thessalonian heavy cavalry, who were completely cut off from Alexander's sight and control. It was attacked by a numerically superior force of Persian cavalry. The Thessalonian commander fought a successful covering force action until such time that the Macedonian heavy cavalry could return and turn the tide. At the same time, Persian light infantry and cavalry exploited a gap in the Macedonian center, pushing through to the baggage trains. The Macedonian heavy hoplite infantry turned and attacked rearward, destroying the lighter Persian forces. This way of fighting was so different than what had been done before that opposing commanders were slow to recognize that a new way of war was upon them and they were unable to adapt to it. Even if they did understand Alexander's flanking maneuvers, without a combined arms team similar to the Macedonians, turning away their infantry from the Macedonian phalanx to form up against Alexander's cavalry attack would create a new flank, exposing weakness to the Macedonian phalanx and other elements of Alexander's combined arms forces. As Macedonian forces drove deeper into Persia, 
Alexander had to leave some Greek forces behind to administer conquered territory. To maintain his strength, Alexander recruited local forces. Some of these were trained in the Macedonian phalanx. Others offered Alexander with new opportunities for combined arms, such as horse archers and other light cavalry capable of deep, independent raids. I could have an entire podcast on Alexander's engineers and mechanical artillery, both in siege warfare and in enabling mobility and logistics. All of those advantages depended upon Alexander's adaptability and willingness to trust subordinate commanders with independent operations. With that organization and the ability to conduct coordinated operations with independent commands, Alexander realized the Greek political ambition for defeating the Persians once and for all, not stopping until Egypt was placed under Greek rule and Alexander himself arrived at the Indus River. It did not last, however. With the death of Alexander and after the passing of his companions who installed as rulers of the former Persian Empire, the vision that enabled those operations faded away. Heavy cavalry was expensive to raise and more difficult to keep trained. So too the professional standing army that the Macedonian phalanx required. Nonetheless, some elements of the Macedonian system remained and dominated warfare for another hundred years. Even the early Roman legions were frustrated by Pyrrhus and Hannibal's use of the Macedonian system. However, no one after Alexander and his companions seemed to be able to let the subordinate elements of their army maneuver with the independence that made Alexander unstoppable. That is, not until Helmut Karl Bernhard von Moltke became chief of staff of the Prussian army in 1857. His innovations will be the subject of the next episode of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. Please come back for that.